This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Before I get rolling on the main content for this episode, there are a lot of little tidbits to mention. The first is that this past weekend, me and the TriDoc Podcast intern and professional triathlete Maddie Pesh got to have our return to racing at the 70.3 in St. George, Utah. It was a beautiful day on an even more beautiful course, and I dare say that while I still haven't had my perfect race, this one could quite realistically be considered my most perfectly executed. I had a plan, I stuck to it, and the payoff was a result that I'm really happy with. All in all, a reminder of how you should work with your coach to help ensure that the hard work you put in before race day comes to, perf- comes to fruition on race day. Now, while the event was fantastic and it was so nice to be back racing again, I have to mention how disappointed I was at the lack of adherence to COVID safety guidelines, including those that were put in place by Ironman itself to try and keep competitors safe. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but suffice it to say there were way too many people, rarely socially distanced, and frequently unmasked, and if the end result were to be that this was a super spreader event, then we're all going to pay the price. Look, I want racing to continue, and I know that it can be done in a way that makes it as safe as possible for everyone involved. This, alas, was not the situation in Utah. Lest we face another surge or shutdown of racing because the events are deemed too risky, I'm really hopeful that USAT and WTC will see the bigger picture here and take uh, actions to make sure that future events are more adherent to the safe return guidelines that they themselves have implemented for everyone's sake. Now in other news, you may have heard that Super Sapiens, one of the companies that makes continuous glucose monitoring for athletes, has signed a promotional agreement with Ironman. Well, if you haven't heard this, you will. Because the full court press is on to convince coaches that they need to push this on their athletes, and there is sure to be significant marketing directed at athletes to convince them that they need this new tech. Before you get too wrapped up in all of this, I would urge you to have a listen, if you haven't already, to episode 59 of this podcast, where I discuss the questionable utility of continuous glucose monitoring and pointed out that there is no good evidence whatsoever to support the claims being made by Super Sapiens. My voice is sure to be drowned out by the millions of dollars that are going to be spent to market this stuff, but I hope that you, my listeners, will at least be informed enough to see through the hype and make an educated decision on this. Lastly, I want to give a shout out to LifeSport Coaching and Maddie Pesh's bike sponsor, Quintana Roo. When Maddie arrived in St. George, she found that her bike had been irreparably damaged in transit by the airline. Not an unusual occurrence, but kind of a sucky thing to discover a couple of days before your event. Well, Maddie took it completely in stride, and within 48 hours after contacting Quintana Roo, they had shipped a brand new frame to my indomitable intern, and she and I went to pick it up and get it all race ready. In the end, Maddie didn't miss a beat, 
And I had to relate the story because it demonstrated something that seems in shorter and shorter supply these days. Fantastic customer service and dedication to their athletes. So good on you, Quintana Roo, and especially to Brianna Hurley, who gets a special mention for everything she did to contribute to the happy ending of this story. On the show today, I have recently discussed several topics related to diet and gastrointestinal distress in triathletes, and today I'm going to continue in that vein with a look at another diet fad, the gluten-free diet. The history of the gluten-free movement is pretty much as sketchy as one would expect whenever diets like this become all the rage, and gluten-free bears a lot of the hallmarks of a fad. People have to drastically restrict what kinds of food they eat, they're led to believe that doing so is necessary for their improved health, and in a pretty sizable majority of those who undertake it, it's simply not sustainable because of all of the restrictions required in order to follow it. So what's the skinny on the gluten-free diet anyway? Is it really healthy? Is there really such a thing as gluten intolerance? And why do people who start on this diet often find that in fact they do feel better, at least for a little while, before they quit? I look at the evidence, and that's coming up. Later, I have part two of my very entertaining and insightful interview with Sarah Gross and Sarah True. If you didn't hear part one of the interview on the last episode, I urge you to go back and take a listen, because these two women have so much to say on so many things, and it's all worth hearing. The conclusion of that interview will be coming up. Before that, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of the show. The TriDoc podcast may be a labor of love on my end, but there are still costs involved in bringing it to you. If you enjoy the program and want to help keep bringing it to you and others, for the price of no more than a cup of coffee per month, you can sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to great bonus content that can be found on my Patreon site, which is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. This month, I'm making a bonus episode free to anyone as a way to let you hear the quality of the kinds of interviews that are usually only available to my supporters. Celine Evans is uh, a life sport nutritional coach and joined me a few episodes ago to discuss nutrition and the keto diet. On this bonus episode, we talk about other nutritional issues, and I hope that you'll have a listen. You can find it again on my Patreon site, which is patreon.com forward slash Tridoc Podcast. And thank you in advance for considering. The domestication and cultivation of various types of plants, especially grains, played a huge role in the development of human civilization and societies. Until grains were grown and harvested in a cyclical manner, humans were nomadic hunters, moving along the savanna or the plains or whatever environment they were living in to track the game animals that they depended on for subsistence. If you've not read the book Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, I highly recommend it as a tome that does a wonderful job explaining the importance of grain farming and why it had such a profound impact on our species. With the domestication of wheat 10,000 years ago, things really accelerated with the development of towns and cities, all made possible by the agrarian principles learned that were needed to raise and harvest wheat and turn it into flour to make bread. For most of that 10,000 years, humans and their relationship with wheat was very much a happy one. The wheat thrived and reproduced, something that all plants want to do, and people had a healthy, reliable food source at the ready. Everything was happiness and sunshine. That is, until 2011, when we learned the horrifying truth about wheat and how it is, quote, the perfect chronic poison, end quote. 
William Davis is a cardiologist in the upper Midwest and had developed a somewhat hateful stance towards our 10-millennia-long diet of wheat-based products. According to him, wheat is responsible for just about everything that ails us, and he took it upon himself to make sure that everyone knew that. To do so, Davis set about performing numerous well-designed clinical trials to test his hypothesis that wheat is pretty much DDT, a rat poison, and Agent Orange all wrapped up in one convenient loaf. No, actually, he didn't do that. Why look for evidence to back up your ideas? Why do pesky, difficult-to-construct research projects when you can just amplify your theories on the internet? Instead of finding scientific evidence to support his claim, Davis wrote a book, Wheat Belly, and then went to respected people like Dr. Oz to promote himself, I mean his theory. Unsurprisingly, Wheat Belly became a worldwide phenomenon, and soon there was a whole industry that appeared out of nowhere to satisfy a newfound demand for a gluten-free lifestyle. Meanwhile, Gastroenterologists, nutritionists, other cardiologists, and even non-medical anthropologists were taken by surprise by all of this. We've been eating wheat for 10 millennia now, and all of a sudden one man with his unsupported theory was able to convince millions of people that in fact wheat was behind everything that ails them. Why, doctors wondered, was this possible? And why weren't other types of health interventions as successful as this? Well, it's now 2021, and in the 10 years and two editions since Wheat Belly made Dr. Davis a rather wealthy and fairly common household name, real science has been done to test his theories, though you're not likely to find any of that mentioned in his book or on his website. So what does the evidence say, and is a gluten-free lifestyle really healthier or even necessary? Now, in case you aren't sure what I'm even talking about, I should mention that gluten is a protein that's found in wheat that Dr. Davies cites as the agent of doom, the previously mentioned chronic poison. According to him, gluten causes a low-grade inflammatory response in the gut and results in all manner of problems. His solution, then, is to eliminate gluten from the diet, allow the gastrointestinal tract to return to a healthy and uninflamed state, and everything will be fine. In reality, there are people who do have a true gluten allergy. These people cannot eat any gluten because the protein causes a significant allergic, allergic response in their gut and causes painful cramping and blood loss in the stool, among other things. However, the people with this disease, celiac sprue, are a very small part of the overall population, about 1%. For those with celiac disease, there's no question gluten is a problem and has to be avoided. But what about all those folks who say they have a gluten intolerance? Well, it turns out that gluten intolerance outside of celiac disease simply does not exist. Period. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as gluten intolerance. An excellent review on the merits of the gluten-free diet put it, I think, rather succinctly. Quote, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is a clinical syndrome, but it does not have an established biological basis. Currently, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is typically self-diagnosed or made by alternative health practitioners. The available data suggests that a large number of patients initially identified as having non-celiac gluten sensitivity are actually not at all gluten sensitive. So what about all of the purported benefits of going gluten-free? 
Well, gluten-free diets are supposed to make you healthier and less likely to develop all manner of inflammatory and autoimmune disease and may even help with athletic performance. And the reason for the decrease or purported decrease of inflammatory and autoimmune disease is, goes back to this notion that gluten somehow causes an inflammatory response in the gut for those who are gluten-sensitive. Well, this from another study on this very topic, quote, there is no evidence that gluten-free diet benefits gastrointestinal stress, immune response, athletic performance, or any autoimmune dysfunction, end quote. Several authors have pointed out that gluten intolerance is almost always self-diagnosed, and that in the absence of any evidence supporting a gluten-free lifestyle, it is not recommended to athletes because of the significant likelihood of nutritional deficiencies associated with it. And women are especially at risk if they adhere to gluten-free foods because there's often not enough iron in gluten-free foods and the lack of fiber is also problematic for them. Now, I know that there will be those who say that switching to gluten-free made them feel better or have less gastrointestinal distress, and there is in fact evidence to support this. However, that same evidence very clearly shows that feeling better has absolutely nothing to do with the removal of gluten from the diet. On the one hand, researchers have shown that people who self-diagnose with an entity like gluten intolerance, for which there is no actual biological disease, demonstrate a very significant placebo effect when they change their diet, and this has been measurable and repeatable across studies. But more importantly, people who go gluten-free significantly restrict their diets and start to eat more fruits and vegetables. The combination of these two things is that these people may be eating more healthy foods and that they may be cutting out the foods that are actually the cause of their symptoms. You see, while gluten has been repeatedly shown to have no influence on gastrointestinal distress or other medical issues, FODMAPs, or fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which are often found in foods that are removed when people switch to a gluten-free diet, most definitely can cause GI distress especially for athletes. These short-chain sugars are not properly digested in some people, and as a result, get into the small intestine where they exert a significant osmotic effect and pull water into the gut, causing cramping, pain, bloating, and diarrhea. Several authors have looked at FODMAPs as the real cause of stomach complaints in those who claim to be gluten intolerant, and invariably, the results have shown that it is the FODMAPs and not the gluten which is the problem for most. Several researchers have promoted the concept of reducing FODMAPs prior to an event and ensuring that no FODMAPs are taken during the event with nutrition. As a means of reducing GI distress in competition and in those who have been studied, this is actually proven to be a very successful strategy. FODMAPs are also implicated in irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, and because they are found in so many dietary sources, several low FODMAP diets have been proposed and published, and I'll include a link in the show notes to one of these if you're interested. And so the take-home here is that gluten intolerance and the need for a gluten-free diet is simply not a thing, unless you are in that 1% who have celiac disease, in which case this isn't likely something you're just figuring out now. There's really no good reason to eliminate gluten from the diet, and in fact, there may be very good reasons not to, especially for women. Instead, if you find that you're suffering from symptoms of IBS or have a lot of GI distress during events, you may want to consider a low FODMAP diet as a possible solution, at least when tapering to a race and certainly on race day itself. So my advice is to have a sandwich on some nutritious and delicious whole wheat bread and spoil yourself with a piece of cake made with enriched flour because depriving yourself of gluten and all of the good things that it's found in is simply not the way to go. 
Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. And if you have thoughts on this subject, I'd love to hear them. Send them along to the same email. If you haven't heard part one of my interview with Sarah True and Sarah Gross, I urge you to go back one episode and take a listen to it. The conversation was informative and entertaining, and both of the Sarahs are very witty, very intelligent, and have so much to say and so much insight on a wide variety of topics relative to triathlon. Well, in part two, we're going to continue the conversation and go on with some more topics that are pertinent to women and participation in uh, our sport, and I know that you will enjoy it just as much. Here then is the conclusion of my interview with Sarah Gross and Sarah True. Um, well, c- continuing the conversation about equity and inclusion, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the role for men in continuing to advocate for and help women succeed in triathlon. I think more and more, I, as a male coach who have female athletes, uh, I'm feeling almost a pressure that um, there's this real or perceived or whatever notion that, you know, women will only succeed if they're coached by women or women need to belong to women's triathlon groups. Um, and I, I know for a fact that's not the case, but that that's just the way I'm perceiving it right now. And, and you know, I, I recognize my status as a privileged white male. So, uh, you know, but, but at the same time, I feel like I have advocated for women and and continue to feel very strongly uh, to that it's my duty to you know support women and yet at the same time always kind of questioning whether or not I should have a voice in that space so I'm curious uh, what you guys think about that I I think no matter what issue we're talking about we need to have every be ad, everyone be advocates right so the fact that you are interested in helping your female athletes perform to their best of their potential, that you are finding research specific to them, that you are interested in these topics, uh, it, that's that is massive. That is massive, and your your female athletes will be better off for it. Now, if they are seeking out spaces that are just for women, they may not be anything performance minded. It may just be that. They want to have that camaraderie. So you do have to separate, you know, is this, is this the performance aspect or is this the community aspect? Because, you know, sometimes sport can feel very male dominated. So if, if your female athletes are going in, in search of, uh, in a female forums, female only forums, uh, female experts, I don't think that should be supportive of what you're doing. But if you feel as though they're leaving you for a coach with, let you know, who's not as credentials solely for gender, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I'm curious, Sarah Gross. Uh, you know, I look at the Women's Performance Summit that you guys are putting on, and it's all female speakers. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering, is that a conscious choice? Is uh, you know, what's the motivation for that? Yeah, good, great question. Um, I just, could I answer the previous question? Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. um, I was just thinking, um, you know, as an ally, like as a male ally for women, I, my first piece of advice would be to always start with listening. 
So even just, you know, yesterday watching what's happening on International Women's Day, um, I think there's a moment in which, you know, women's voices do become more important. Um, and International Women's Day is perhaps that day when it's like... I would argue it's every day. <laughs> yeah. But, we don't need a, a specific day. day. <laughs> but if there's a day when someone was to say... Um, for example, like black, to, to take, cause I can't really pretend I'm a man, but like black history month, right? If I want to share something about black history month, I want to share a voice, the, the voice of an African-American, or I want to share someone else's voice because that's yeah. not my voice. So I think there's a certain place I would, I would offer that same advice to men who want to support women. It's like, look for, for a woman's voice that you agree with and that you feel is doing something good and share her voice mm. um, instead of your, your own opinion <laughs> all the time. Right. But then also um, there is a time to, there's a time. And I think about this for myself too, when I'm talking about other demographics, um, like there's, there's a place where if we, if you are an expert, you know, like, like you're a doctor, right? Like if you are an expert in a space, there is a point at which it's like, okay, it is, it becomes appropriate to, to share your opinion or your voice on something that might affect other people like hormones, women's hormones or something like that. Um, so sorry, what was your second question? The women's performance summit. With, oh yeah. Uh, yeah you know what? It, it actually was not an intentional choice, um, to have all women, women's voices. Um, it's just who we found who would do it, who was doing work in the space of, of actively focusing on, on women's performance, whether that's with mental health or, uh, physiology, nutrition. Um, I definitely would, if, if there was an expert who was male, um, I would definitely share his voice as well. Um, I think I do, you know, with, with outspoken, you know, the outspoken women in triathlon summit, um, we definitely made a choice to share women's voices, uh, exclusively. And that that's more about, you know, creating equity and equality in triathlon for women. That's what that summit's more about. And so, uh, for us, that was recognizing that women's voices have perhaps been overlooked, uh, and creating a stage and a platform for those voices. And I think that's important too. You know, there's, um, I think there's different ways to make change and there are places where we need to have everybody speaks, you know, and there are other times when we need to say, okay, if these voices over here have been forgotten, I want to hear from those people. Um, and that's where I think our women's women in triathlon summit, the outspoken summit fits in uh, versus the women's performance summit, where we've committed to finding experts who can speak to various, um, various aspects of women's performance. And that's, that's kind of the lens through which we choose. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that makes complete sense. And I appreciate the difference between those two, uh, two conferences because it, uh, is, um, obviously a distinction that's, uh, important. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to, you know, speaking of change, uh, I have a, a very non-controversial question to end up with, and uh, I'm sure this will be quick, but, um, You know, there's this brewing controversy related to the participation of transgender athletes in sports. Specifically, I mean, let's face it, it's really about trans women participating in women's sport. Um, I'm sure I don't have to tell you about the recent post by um, the um, usually very humble and quiet Brett Sutton. Um, I say that with tongue planted firmly in cheek. Uh, And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, is, is this the, the huge massive threat that uh, is being portrayed mostly by 
cis men. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, listen, I'm friends with some very high performing female athletes who have expressed their concerns. Uh, they tend to anchor on the, um, the one episode of Rachel McKinnon, the, uh, the Canadian trans, uh, woman track cyclist. Uh, but, uh, that was a real event. And I, you know, I mean, I, it's hard for me to dissuade their fears. Uh, so I'm just curious as, as prominent women in the sport, how do you perceive this? Do you see this as the threat that people are making it out to be, or is there room for trans women in women's sport? So I think the problem is that we have two categories that are based on biological sex, but that is not, that's exclusive, you know? So we have a system that is fundamentally flawed because it's not reflective of the biological reality. Uh, because gender is complicated. Uh, you know, biological sex is complicated. And yet we've decided to make it super simple and pretend like it's supposed to be super simple. And the knee-jerk reaction, um, you know, there are actually times where I agree with Brett Sutton on certain things. I don't know these tweets. I'm guessing I wouldn't agree with him at all on it. But he's not a man who enjoys nuance. He probably wouldn't do a deep dive into reading about biological sex and gender and really wanting to understand these issues. And so his response is an emotional response. You know, in, and fear, as we know, is a very powerful emotional response. It's a lot easier to, to lean on that, to, to really sit back and think about the issue, think about individuals involved, and try to realize it's an extremely complex situation, but also try to approach with empathy that like, I think we all love sport. We all want people to be able to have the ability to participate in sport. So if, if you can think about it that way and just realize that this is, the, the system first of all is flawed. I have no idea how you fix it because we have decided that we have only two categories. But also that just these are humans who just like we all should have the right to be able to play triathlon because it's playing. And to be able to deny somebody that right or put them in a category where they don't feel comfortable. That's not fair either. Um, but Sarah's a lot more well well versed in the subject. So I'll, I'll pass the mic to her. Oh, I loved your answer, Sarah. That I loved it too. I <laughs> thought it was great. So I, I just want to be thought of as a man who does enjoy nuance. So I, I <laughs> <laughs> definitely the quote of the interview. I think. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, um, speaking of nuance, I was thinking you were saying, Sarah, that um, like biological sex is complicated. Like, the social reality of gender is, yeah. is even more complicated. Exactly. Because, because gender is how we self-select into those categories. So if you have a men's category and a women's category, someone, people get to self-select into the category, right? Um, how, how are you, this is the question that um, a friend of mine always brings up when, when people are coming from that point of view of exclusion, like we need to save women's sport, <laughs> protect the gates. Like, how are you going to police that? Right. Like, are we going to go back to the days where we're like <laughs> in the Olympics where women used to have their clits measured to mm. make sure that to make sure that they were women? Like, 
what what's going to happen? You know, the the chromosome test yeah. proved yeah, to the be bar bodies. Yeah, flawed. Uh, yeah. Um, Arkansas has got a law on the, that they're considering right now that would actually call for girls to have their genitals inspected before they can participate in female sports. I mean, this is insane. That's insane. Yeah. Those are children. Yeah. How can you do that to children? I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, that's the part I don't understand. Yeah. Like, yeah. Who's suggesting this sort of stuff? Well, unfortunately, it's the parents who are, as you said, this is an emotional thing where everybody's terrified. And, uh, you know, in in this country, sports is everything. It's all about my kids going to succeed because they're going to succeed in sports. And I can't have them threatened by, you know, some boy who wants to be a girl today. I mean, as if as if that boy woke up that morning and thought, oh, I'm going to be a girl today. I mean, come on, folks. It's like, you know, fear is... Uh, an incredible motivator Mm -hmm. and it's being leveraged in the most heinous ways. Um, And it's really unfortunate, but, but I do have to recognize again, as a man, it's, this doesn't impact me. I can see the impact it has. I mean, I'm talking to a friend of mine who's a very high performing female athlete who is incredibly reasonable, who does have the ability to see nuance and you know, her, fear is there aren't that many Kona slots. She's going to show up at a race and some trans woman who has the purported benefit of, you know, having lived with testosterone for as long as they did can show up and beat her based on that. And I have tried infinitely to try and say, you know, all of the other things. Well, you know, I mean, there are so many disadvantages that trans people have in life as a whole. Uh, Getting to that level, you know, if they're able to, I think we have to accept that on merit, but uh, it's it's kind of falling on a little bit of deaf ears because I'm not in the position. So it's, I, mm-hmm. you know, it's really hard for me to make the argument. So yeah, part th- part of the problem is a lot of this kind of blew up after Biden signed an executive order about youth sport. Yes. And somehow it's gotten conflated uh, when we talk about high performance sport. And people just have to realize that Right now, the discussion is about youth sport. It's about youth participation. Participation. It's not about, and we will we will cross that bridge. You know, obviously in the Olympics and other sports, it's been an issue that they are trying to figure out. But you can't conflate high performance sport with youth participation. And that's exactly what we're doing. And it becomes very emotional driven. If to your your friend chasing the cone slot, it's a non-issue. You know, it, it really is a non-issue in triathlon. And honestly, like, if it be, if it's something that we have to discuss, then great, we'll discuss it. But right now, the conversation you can't jump from youth sport participation to you know Olympic medals. That's a separate discussion. I think there's obviously overlap because um, I, I believe in the, the the rights for people to participate. But it's just how we make those those leaps is really fascinating to me. Yeah, we've had two Olympic cycles in which technically a trans woman could qualify and compete. You're speaking and, of Semana from South Africa. Uh, well, I think there's been I've, there's been a couple. Uh, no, not Castor Semenya, but I I'm. 
thinking that's a different. She's intersex. Yeah. yeah, she's intersex. Yeah. But the what I'm saying is, there's been two Olympic cycles where technically there are rules in place where a trans woman could compete in the Olympic Games, and right? none have. And there's been no like, there's not nobody's taking over the podiums. Right. Like, it's mm. like it's like I don't think none. I don't think none have. I think maybe it's just they didn't win. Nobody's paying attention. Sometimes you don't even know. How would you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm. Um. And so, like. I don't know. I think one of the things that bothers me the most is that one, well, two things bother me a lot. One, I think we should always start with inclusion. So as soon as you're talking about who we're going to exclude, you're like, you're on the wrong conversation. Right. So let's talk about how we're going to include everyone. Um, and then secondly, the, the, the conversation is this, it's largely around how we need to protect, we need to protect women because, and here's all the reasons, here are all the reasons why women are weaker than men. <laughs> Like, and then it's like testosterone and this and this and like, I'm like, I'm tired of hearing that. Right. Especially when, um, when you don't have trans women flooding in and, and winning women's sports, like that's just actually not a real thing that's happening. Right. So I don't want to hear about how I'm physiologically weaker than men anymore. Like I'm yeah. done with that. Like I want to hear about how amazing I am. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think if, if your friend is not able to qualify, uh, it's not going to be because, there may be one or two transgendered athletes who decide to jump into the professional ranks at some day, at some point. Um, it's going to be because, you know, your friend's ability isn't quite there yet. Um, I mean, that's, that's, so it's, or because she gets beaten by another woman who's just, well, that's not, well, that's what I'm saying. Her. Yeah. That's that, that's my point. Yeah. There, there's, but I mean, we would, we would all be women, in her ranks. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is where language gets important. But I, I think people people keep on coming back to, well, you're going to discourage women and girls from, from entering. And I just don't think that's true. So I, I know from my personal experience, we, we didn't have a high school boys swim team uh, we, or a girls swim team. We only had a boys swim team. And so I, I joined it because that was the only way I was going to swim in high school. And it was totally, it didn't, it didn't deter me because there might have been a couple of boys who beat me swimming. Uh, I continued in sport because I loved it and I actually beat them a lot of the time. So, you know, pat on my back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if you love the sport, it, it shouldn't matter. You know, it shouldn't matter if, if, okay, maybe there were a couple of high school meets where I could have won, but who cares? In the long, and I still kept on with sport because I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed racing. If the only reason we're doing sport is to win your age group at a local race, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah. I can I add to that too. I this in this past year, I've become plugged in um, and made a partnership with an LGBTQ uh, community. We're doing a we're hosting a conference together in May, um, and they're they're working a lot on trans inclusion. And one of the things I realized in working um, with with that entire community, I mean, in the trans community, it's it's a big impact that we're actually talking about life and death, mm -hmm. like and and that the impact that being able to participate in sport can have on um, even an, on a, like a, a young gay boy, that conversation, you know, um, and being accepted in sport. Like that's a whole, that's a whole thing. Like people, <laughs> you know, people, um, like we talked about mental health earlier, 
right? Like sometimes when we're talking about something where inclusion can make the difference or seeing someone else like yourself competing in sport um, could actually make the difference to life and death and you feeling like you wanted to continue living on this earth. Like mm. that is a, that is something that as an advocate for women's sport, I don't have to face that often. Like I know that we have unequal treatment, but I'm not often faced with, oh, um, with those kinds of like mental health issues. Mm. Right. And so I think with, we need to think about that. Like what I actually wanted to tweet and it just felt overly emotional, but in response to to the original, to Brett's article, was I actually wanted to say, listen, I would I would give up both of my Ironman titles if I knew I was going to save one trans kid's life. Yeah. Like, that is like, I have no problem. I have zero problem com- competing against. Um, no, all, I, all I, I think you're, you're absolutely right, is that we get so focused on ourselves that we forget about, the, it may have an outsized benefit to somebody else. Mm-hmm where we take for granted that we belong in certain spaces, but to be able to open the door, invite more people in, not, not try to think about how to exclude people from sport. And I, I can't think of a better way to end the conversation than with that. Uh, you know, this, the whole theme of inclusion versus exclusion, having the conversation about how to get more people involved, not how to keep them out is one that I think we need to keep at the forefront of this whole conversation. And I am going to take that forward. And I think that even though I am a cis male, I think that um, that's a message that I can still state and hopefully will have some weight. And I recognize again, that this is not as much of an issue for the men's side of things, but um, hearing two prominent women like yourself say it is uh, really fantastic and resonates. Um, I have just uh, untold amounts of esteem and respect for you both. I am so grateful to have had you on my podcast today. And um, I can only hope that we'll get through this mess soon and that uh, we'll have an opportunity to potentially meet in person at some point in the future. Sarah True, Sarah Gross, thank you so very much for joining me on the TriDog podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel, where you'll find new content, including a video where I give some insight on what tri training camps are all about and whether or not that's something you should consider. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast to get even more content. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. 
This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon, with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.